0: Hey, gang. Um, I apologize in advance for uh, how rough I may look and may sound for this one. The um, Yesterday, I went and had uh, skin cancer burned off my face um, in the morning. And that turned out to be the least painful thing that happened all day. The um, My eyes are puffy and I'm kind of snotty because... Uh, because I've been uh, literally been chopping onions. I just ate lunch. Uh, and also I've been chopping onions because my incredible friend Mark Lanigan died yesterday. And I've been struggling to process that. Um, because he really, he really felt like an immortal. Um, He felt like it felt like he had been dead so many times and returned that um he had beaten death so many times that I thought he'd beaten it forever. Um I figured, you know, he would be he would be burying me and not the other way around. The but I had hoped to have Mark as a guest on this podcast. Um so there will be no guest today. Um, I always thought that Bill Burr was a, a total psychopath for being able to just talk into the mic by himself, uh, for hours at a time. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm certainly feeling crazy enough today. So I'm going to attempt to do the same thing and, uh, see if I can, uh, see if I can hold my pee for that long and see if I can hold my tears for that long to try to give you guys a, um, sort of a history of um, my friendship with Lanigan and uh, how, what he meant to me, all the ways in which he, you know, he meant something to me. The, um, I, I want to say too, I, you know, I got so many messages from people yesterday, the, um, you know, expressing their condolences and also expressing gen, genuine concern for my well-being uh, I'm okay. I'm I'm fucking heartbroken, and I'm gonna cry a lot through this. But that's that is your body's perfect mechanism for processing grief. The I uh, I'm heartbroken, but I'm not gonna drink. Um, I'm not gonna do anything to hurt myself. The um, Lanigan would not be pleased. <laughs> the so I'm I- gonna. I'm just gonna try and put it all together, sort of how he, how he came into into my life, and uh, the you know, the, it's, I guess the history of our friendship and how we work together. Um, give you guys a little sort of glimpse behind the scenes. Um, I'm not gonna start at the very beginning with me discovering his music. Instead, I'm gonna I'm gonna start in uh, this was maybe 2014 or 2015. The my old friend Zach Lopez was uh, running a uh, like a, a public speaking night um, at Mike Studios uh, Hi Fi Bar in Manhattan, and uh, and Zach invited me to, to to read a piece, and nothing that I had sort of ready to go was appropriate for words and music, their you know, the name name of their night about um, music writing basically. So I just sat down and I tried to write a record review of Mark Lanigan's Bubblegum, a record that you know that's been incredibly mean, meaningful to me. Um so I showed up that night and uh Zach introduced me by saying he has a voice like Mark Lanigan 10 years in the grave. Give it up for my old friend, Mishka. Um, and I was like, you motherfucker, I'm reading a piece about Lanigan. Um, and this is uh, this is the piece that I read. I'll be reading it off my phone because my fucking Wi-Fi is down. The... Anyway, this is called 1500 Words That Won't Tell You What Mark Lanigan's Bubblegum Sounds Like. At age 26, you run out of markers. Your adolescence is just first, after first, after first. First wet dream, first period, first guilty masturbation, first fight, first drunk, first boob touch, first weird homoerotic dream, first crotch warmth detected through jeans, first high, first shoplifting, first lay, first heartbreak, first blackout. So, too, with rock and roll. Emblematic, iconic, first after first. Look what the cat dragged in. Appetite for destruction. London calling. And justice for all. Out of step. The real thing. Nothing's shocking. Sticky fingers. Never mind. Highway 61 revisited. Surfer Rosa. In the flat field. Revolution girl style now. Extra width. This is, of course, a revisionist history, as all history is revisionist, because genocide may be easier to explain than an affinity for the Steve Miller Band and House of Pain. But by the time you turn 26, you've run out of firsts. You've been living in a black hoodie and jeans for 10 years now, you're past all the good birthdays, and you look forward to each new PJ Harvey or Dinosaur Jr. or Nick Cave record the same way you look forward to your next infantilizing breakup. Like you look forward to ravers or rednecks inventing a new drug, the same way you look forward to May and that slushy, interminable Bushwick March. It's not going to be mind-blowing. It's not going to be devastating or overpowering in its newness. Just the next in a series. Not great, but good. Or at least better than the last one, which, by now, you are incredibly sick of. This vast wasteland of being 26 will last 5 or 10 or even 20 years. A long, meaningless, undifferentiated string of years, lazily uncoiling like a spool of fishing line, knocked Unnoticed, off the side of a small wooden boat. Sure, at some later juncture, the loss of that spool will not just be noticed, but acutely missed. Wait, I could have sworn I had more. Shit. Dude, we might be fucked. But in the moment, that decade of being 26 will tumble into the vast ocean with not even a splash, just a tiny bloop, then disappear under the waves forever. Sometimes, during that sargasso of immature 26-ness, a record will circle you like a wary lover. You catch a glimpse of the record at asterisk, nearly falling down the stairs in four-inch heels and Alice Cooper mascara. You make eye contact, but don't speak. The next time you see her at room on a Monday night, she looks worn, so much white foundation she looks almost blue. You talk for a second and you try to make a joke, But you're too drunk, and she gives you a look, then spins on her stool to talk to her friend-slash-drug-dealer-slash-driver. A full two years later, you encounter her alone in a booth at Kellogg's Diner, in that precarious window after Saturday last call before Sunday sunrise. She looks softer, her cheeks less gouged out, but it's impossible to tell if her face is swollen from tears or bruised, or just that she's been eating for the first time in years. Now, finally, it's your time. The time for both of you, together. Not because you're both desperate to unhinged, not because each of you has mercilessly fucked your way through every other potential mate from Crown Heights to Astoria, but because finally, everything, the flickering fluorescent lights, the murmuring busboys, the cold eggs on the table between you, well, it means something. You will each fall into the other and together you will spin a mucousy cocoon of insecurity and passive aggression and weird sex and Vicodin and cigarette ashes and coffee cups. You know, that thing that in this city of radically diminished expectations, that thing we call love. It was in this manner that I fell in love with a record. Bubblegum by Mark Lanigan. I'd I've been, I've been aware of Mark Lanigan since 92 as the singer of the Screaming Trees from that song from the singles soundtrack. Yes, fuck you. I remember that, and I will force you to remember our collective folly. I'm not going to tell you about his life, the trouble with the law, the tractor accident, the heroin... I'm not going to defile Mark Lanigan by telling you he sounds like the bastard son of Artist X and Artist Y under the influence of Substance Z. I've heard Mark Lanigan compared to Tom Waits and Josh Hum, two artists I feel should quit music to pursue acting in a series of family comedy films with the same urgency that I feel Ice Cube should return to making records. I can tell you that I don't want Mark Lanigan to become an actor. I can tell you that I want him to continue making records like Bubblegum. When I was 27, Tony the Neck told me Bubblegum was a necessary record. But he was a couple of hours into tattooing me in his kitchen, and he had brought the ink down right onto my nipple. I was in so much pain that the importance of Bubblegum didn't register. When I next saw Tony the Neck, he was back in LA and I was living out of my van. He told me again about bubblegum, about how he had been banging coke and listening to methamphetamine blues on repeat, so high his vision was whiting out. This record sounded like something I could really use. Still, it was three years later when I finally picked it up, a dark time for me. I was living in the last dying breath of Greenpoint, working a construction gig out in Queens, which felt a lot like admitting defeat. But there were two good things in my life. bubblegum and a potent pink painkiller that cut up so nicely it was almost like it had been designed by scientists in lab coats for the express purpose of being snorted off a CD case with a rolled up post-it note. There were, they were two secrets. Secrets which, together, didn't add but multiplied in power. When I got high and listened to Mark Lanigan sing when I'm bombed and milk that last word till it was nearly four syllables like when P.W. Long says gun well that was everything it was a dark time but those two secrets made it so I was okay you may respect someone you may admire them you may be attracted to them you may wish for great things for them you may want to fuck them so bad it feels like you are afflicted with an illness None of this equates to love. One telltale sign of true love is pestering your friends about the merits of the object of your affection. Affection they will never share. Merits they can never comprehend. Wait, really? Her? Dude, she looks like Lydia from the Beetlejuice cartoon. There will be bitter sexual jealousy. I recall a friend telling me about walking into Motor City in the late 90s with his new girl. Her ex walked by scowled at her and growled, no one will ever eat your pussy like I could. Lastly, love requires some straight-up irrational insanity. I was drunk at dinner with a girlfriend and her parents one night, and I sank into a jealous sulk, silently fuming at how unfair it was that they had known her longer than I had. This is the jerk I became with bubblegum, I pushed it on my friends, ranting drunkenly about its perfection. I envied bitterly Mark Lanigan's tractor accident, imagined in erotic detail those huge tires crushing my own legs. Bubblegum, no one will ever eat your pussy like I could. There's a new Mark Lanigan record out, but I haven't listened to it. When I was 20, I drank a lot of wine. You know, Carlo Rossi, jug wine with the metal cap. One of my roommates suggested that I should take a class about wine, or at least read a book. You know, if I was so passionate about wine, why not learn something about it? Must I explain to you how fucking idiotic this is? I have found something that makes me happy. Why would I go about the dull business of learning when that effort could jeopardize this fragile, narrow pleasure I have found? If bubblegum is composed mostly of grain alcohol and purple food coloring, I don't want to know about it. I am not entirely selfish, so I will tell you that you should listen to bubblegum. I'm not going to tell you what it sounds like. If you want to know bubblegum as I have known bubblegum, just turn on the instant porn machine in your closet of a bedroom, or the instant porn machine in your pocket. Then you can tell me what it sounds like I will tell you what it felt like listening to bubblegum felt like being in love listening to bubblegum felt like being loved pitchfork gave it a 7.2 the so i i think i guess that was the first uh, public forum in which I, I, declared my lasting affinity for, you know, for Mark, uh, for Mark Lanigan's work. And the, the response I got from people that night was, uh, was, was incredible. Um, uh, Will Chef from, uh, fuck, why can't I ever think of anyone's band? You know who Will Chef is. The Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone was there. Um, and he cornered me in front of Will Sheff, the, and, uh, to tell me how brilliant I was. And, uh, you know, and, and Will, do you know Mishka? You know, and man, that was fucking amazing. It was so good. Rob Sheffield is such a great writer and it it just felt incredible. And, um, and then Sheffield got up and, and read this elegiac piece for, uh, for Ronnie Spector. Um, that was just incredible and devastating. It had us on our feet, like, cheering, um, you know, and that such a fantastic writer would esteem what I had written. It. I mean, I, you know, it was just, it was a tremendous night. The, so I ended up uh, finding a home for that piece and got it published. And, um... When I got it published, I I tweeted it out and I tagged Lanigan and I felt a little weird, a little insecure about it because Lanigan had a reputation for being a real hard ass. The um, but he uh, he retweeted it right away and then he followed me, and I messaged him and uh, I said something like, um, you know, I hope you enjoyed the record review. Um, it was. Uh, it was my intention for the piece to be called uh, No One Can Eat Your Pussy Like Mark Lanigan Can. And uh, and he wrote back something, you know, wry and funny, like, uh, you just said the only thing that you could that would diminish my enjoyment of your writing <laughs> was that I had, I had suggested that title and then not been able to get it through. Um, so... You got it, you know. The what's, what's the uh, Jane's Addiction line? I'll take my chances when I get them. Um, so, with you know, Lan- chatting back and forth with Lanigan, I, I was like, you know, listen, forgive me this fanboy move, but can I send you a copy of my book? The uh, your work was um, listening to Bubblegum and Here Comes That Weird Chill. It was so much, it brought me so much comfort in such um, hard times that I actually thanked Lan- had thanked Lanigan um, in my memoir and uh, titled one of the chapters um, off of one of his song lyrics. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, here's my address, you know, please send it. And I sent it and then I didn't hear anything. Um, and a couple of months later i was like fuck it man you know the um there have been you know many times in, in in this life where i i had an opportunity and i was too timid to follow up and i was like it's Lanigan. like you got at the risk of being annoying or whatever you have to try so i messaged him and i was like hey you know just check in to see if you'd had a chance to read the book and he wrote back right away and he was like i'm so sorry you know i've been busy the um, but I ha- have it right here, um, and I'm gonna st- I'm gonna start it tomorrow. And uh, I was like, "All right, you know the it's good that you messaged him, but the he's not gonna start it tomorrow because who would do that?" The next day, uh, I was on tour. I was in uh, I was in Scotland. I was in uh, Edinburgh, and I got a, a a DM from Lanigan. Hey, I started your book today. The I'm a third of the way through it. I've been reading it all day. Um, I'm, I'm really loving it. And, uh, the, and I hadn't had a great show, uh, in Edinburgh that night. And I think the promoter had like tried to, to sell me heroin or something like that, something weird. And the, um, a fan who became a friend had actually paid for a hotel room for me. So I just stayed up that whole night, uh, just DMing with Lanigan. And I, you know, I couldn't believe that he was reading my work, um, at all. And that he enjoyed it enough to, um, to message me. He finished the book the next day, you know, the, and I was like, you know, thanks. I, I guess you liked it, but also uh, motherfucker. That took me 18 months to write, like, slow down the, and, uh, he said, you know, if you're ever in LA, hit me up and, uh, and we'll get lunch. And, uh, and I was like, you, you will live to regret those words. Cause I, I will do it. And, uh, and I did the, I was like, uh, you know, I mess, you know, we didn't message for a while. And then I messaged and I was like, Hey, you know, Mark, I'm going to be in LA, the, you know, any chance of us getting lunch, I'm going to be, you know, there for this window to this window. And, uh, he was like, yeah, you know, I'll be, I'll be coming back from Seattle. You know, I, I, I can maybe make that work, you know, no promises yet. Um, I didn't mention to him, I booked the trip to LA just to get lunch with Mark. <laughs> the, <laughs> I was like, man, I'll feel like a real sucker if I go out there and then, you know, he, he doesn't do it, but, um, he did, you know, he picked out a, a restaurant, you know, close to his house and, uh, the, and I went and it was hot. It was a hot day. The, um, and I was like, am I going to wear jeans and, uh, feel cooler, but more uncomfortable? No, I hadn't even fucking brought jeans with me because it was like the summer in California. Why would you bring jeans? Uh, so I went to go and meet my, one of my fewer living musical heroes in fucking shorts like a like a child, like a like a schoolboy. And I was like waiting outside for him. The and then he, he comes strolling around the corner. And uh, and I, I didn't even I was like, you know, wasn't even ready for it. And he's a tall dude, you know, the almost as tall as me. And he uh, and he walks fast too, and he just sort of walked around the corner, and then he was right there, and he was like, "Hey, what's up, man?" And, like threw an arm around me, the and we hugged, and that was the first, last, and only time that Lanigan and I ever hugged. I think, the but um, you know he sort of threw his arm around me, gave me a hug, and then let me go, looked down at my shorts, and like, <laughs> and we went inside, the. So we went inside and we um, ordered food and started talking and stuff. The And really, you know, within within 90 seconds, we were talking about, like, you know, death. Um, oh, we've got to eat healthy, you know, um, we're all going to die, you know, where do you want to be buried? What do they, you want them to do with your body? And I was like, the and i had like a moment of sort of self reflection i was like jesus christ you know the um uh, y- you meet mark lanigan and it, it, it in under 2 minutes you're talking about death and destruction and oblivion and he's sort of raised an eyebrow at me and he was like well what are you here for kid and i said well i didn't want to i didn't want to get into it like right away the but um And, you know, and possibly ruin our lunch, but I I really think you should write a book. And he, um, he gave me a stink eye and was sort of like, man, I just got off the plane from Seattle. Bourdain was giving me the same shit. And I was like, well, if you don't listen to me, listen to him, you know, the, but I really, I did everything I could to try and sort of charm him and, and force him into being my friend that day. But also, I knew that, um, I really really wanted him to write a book and that um and that if he wrote a book that it would be incredible. Um and when I went back home the we stayed in touch. He he would text me, he would call me regularly and we, we sort of just chatted. The um my girlfriend at the time called him Marquina because she said it was my other girlfriend. Because she would sort of, uh, you know, come home and find me sitting on the couch, like texting and giggling, and like sort of waiting for the next text to come in. And she was like, "Oh, is that your, is that your other girlfriend, Marquina?" The, but we, uh, you know, Mark and I really, you know, sort of became very close very quickly. The uh, his friend Duke Garwood, who I'm a huge fan of, um, had been house sitting him, you know, for him for. Uh, a couple of weeks and uh, Duke had just recorded a record for uh, on a four track sitting in on Mark's dining room table um, for Mark to do music to. And uh, the, and I, and he was just blown away. Um, He was an incredibly sweet dude. He was incredibly tough and incredibly hard um, but very, but also an incredibly sweet guy. And he was, you know, sort of openly touched by Duke's gesture of recording it, you know, making a record in Mark's absence for, for, you know, Mark to do lyrics to. And Mark did it, wrote words and recorded it in like a fucking week. Um, I take like five years to make a record. And this musician who was, you know, incre- vastly more talented, his worst record is better than my best, um, he'll just bang it out in a week. You know, I was, I was stunned. The and that was the thing about Lanigan is that to be in his presence, it was um it was like you were you were hanging out with a god. The um and I say a god, not the god, because he was like the sort of Greek and Roman gods in that um, he was flawed, um, and he knew that he was flawed. And he was, he was prone to um, jealousy and anger and insecurity like we all are. Um, but there was something about him that was not of this world. Um, he was, uh, you know, 50% vampire and 50% werewolf and uh, 50% man from outer space. Um, and... Uh, yeah, he was... He's just an incredible dude. The, and, you know, and texting back and forth with him, the, I don't know, it fucking made me so happy. It brought me so much pleasure to, to text him jokes about, you know, my, uh, my unwilling little dick, and, uh, you know, I could I could tell by his responses that I had actually made him laugh out loud, and and he. <laughs> He repeated them to his wife. Uh, Thanks, buddy. <laughs> so they were both sort of laughing at my expense. Um, the but one of the things that was so powerful about Lanigan as as an artist and as a friend was that was that he wasn't just um, he wasn't just a god. He was also a muse. Uh, so much. Narrative flowed through him. The oh god damn it! The I had my notepads from one of the first visits I made to his house, where I had you know was taking notes about all the, um, you know, all the stories that he wanted to tell, and uh, and I think I I just threw them away because I was like cleaning house. I did that with the same fucking thing with a guitar signed by Merle Haggard just before Merle Haggard died. The but Mark was Mark was absolutely amused for me, and I think for a lot of other people. It was the it was sort of like uh, standing close to a uh, like a high current power transformer, you know, that there's so much energy flowing through it. There's so much narrative flowing through him and, and poetry and darkness and light and darkness and light in a battle that. Just to just to stand close to it, you could hear it, you could feel it. Like it was, it was really, it was just humming through him at all at all times. The, um. And he had the most. He had the most intense eyes. The, you know, I. I want to say, you know, eyes like a like a great white shark, the. But that doesn't do it, you know, that doesn't do him justice because the shark doesn't, a shark, you know, does one, you know, one thing, it eats, you know, and the, and his eyes were still full of life, um, sort of constant motion in them, and, uh. But he had these incredible thousand-yard stare eyes, and I remember driving the, that big two-tone uh, Chevy, the Unbookables van, to up to his house in L.A., and uh, his house was on a very steep hill, and the only spot there I had to parallel park to get into. So I'm parking this, like, uh, three-quarter ton camper van on a very steep incline while... One of my heroes is just sitting there smoking and casually watching me. (laughs) Fucking, uh, you know, so many nerve-rattling experiences with him. But um, one of the things that happened around that time was I... um, He released the album uh, Gargoyle, and... I was supposed to read something when I was teaching at Yale, and I felt you know, horribly insecure that, that I hadn't written anything new that year, and I'd read my piece about landing in the year before and, and to rave reviews, so I just uh, sat down one day in uh, in New York in a coffee shop. I think I was already living in Atlanta by this point, the, but started writing out this piece, and uh, this ended up being the piece that I read at Yale that year. And... Uh, um, my review of you know his his new record at the time, which I think was 2017. Um, so this piece is called "Dancing to Mark Lanigan's Gargoyle." In hindsight, the year 2000 was a sweet spot of sorts, sandwiched as it was between the bogus doomsaying of Y2K and the boundless terror of 9/11. I was 22. Living in New York City, working as a bar back in a huge, dank cavern of a nightclub near the West Side Highway called Dawn Hills. I worked Tizwas, the Brit Pop Night. I worked Squeezebox, the sleazy 70s glam night. I worked Rock Candy, that corpse violation of American culture known as 80s Night. Yes, 80s Night was an abomination the crush of sweaty bodies, the hair gel the sickening bath of cologne, the fingering or getting fingered on the dance floor. But it's not like every night wasn't an abomination. I recall specifically the waning hours of one Saturday night Tizwa's Britpop party. Several well-muscled young men surrounded a fallen comrade face down on the bar. Were they wearing backwards baseball hats and muscle shirts, or is that just the cruelty of my memory? They began shouting along with the melody from the Verve's bittersweet symphony, but these young man-apes substituted a more poignant refrain. You can't hang, you can't hang, you can't hang. One pounded the object of their attention on the back with a simian paw, and he gurgled, then weakly vomited clear liquid onto the bar. I don't want to give you the mistaken impression that something at Dawn Hills had soured. It was a west side Manhattan nightclub close to the Holland Tunnel at the end of the millennia. It was exactly like a west side Manhattan nightclub close to the Holland Tunnel at the end of the millennia. One night, a girl asked me if I had coke. I mean, girls always asked me if I had coke, but this night I did have coke. I had found a crusty yellowed half 40 bag on the floor. I hesitated for a split second because I wasn't sure I wanted to share this secret treasure I had discovered. In that split second of hesitation, the girl wordlessly pulled her black half-shirt up to reveal pale white breasts. Like some robotic vending machine, I wordlessly handed her the Coke and she disappeared with it. I never saw her breasts or the Coke again. Like I said... It was a sweet spot of sorts. The club was a cult of youth, reckless youth, kamikaze youth, youth that sprang to life at midnight. We had no fear of death, but all the fear of aging. I remember winding up in a girls' Williamsburg apartment one early morning. I considered her pathetic. She was 26 and still worked as a bartender. I intended to have a book published by 25 and be dead by 30. I was never even able to hold on to a job as a bartender. But there was this one guy. He was old. Not just older, but legit old. 50 or maybe even 60. At least a hard, craggy, unfiltered Paul Mall's 50. Hepatitis 50. 50. He was friends with Jessica, the waitress with syringe mosquitoes tattooed on her chest. His hair was thin, spiked, blonde, gray, gray blonde. His hair, his flesh, everything appeared an unearthly blue in the lights from the club. His eyebrows were brutally severe, and his face looked like it had been carved from a stone. His eyes were soft and deep and sensitive. The eyes of a junkie often look like they have been built out of liquid eyeliner. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's something stronger. When everyone came to Dawn Hills in twos or threes or packs, this man came alone. He had a couple of drinks, drinks he paid for, but he never creeped on girls, never made a problem. He showed up, he took his shirt off, He danced alone in a corner in his black leather pants, clumsily but with great feeling, like a lonesome grinning skeleton that has rented a flesh suit on a lark for an evening out on the town. He swayed and ground to Jesus and Mary chain, joy division, new order thundering out of speaker cabinets, large and impassive as monoliths, and then he quietly disappeared into the night alone. His name was Robert Lund. And here my memory betrays me, but at least I know it betrays me. Memory crashes over you. It overwhelms you, everything at the same time. Unlike memory, real life unfolds in a linear fashion. First, you drink too much at work. Then you lose your night's wages in just two hands of poker to Gary, the British gangster who beats a a customer bloody twice or three times a year. Then you stumble out into the early morning, furious and stunned that you have worked for ten hours for absolutely nothing. Then a rat runs over your foot in the subway. Then you kick it. Then you stomp it to death. Then you feel sick with grief, not for the tiny life you have just extinguished, but for the nearly erotic satisfaction the killing has brought you. No, in memory, everything happens simultaneously. When I recall Robert Lund, when I say the name Robert Lund, I recall everything I know about him, everything I later learned about him, everything related to him, and instantly it shrouds him. Robert Lund played the bouncer in the movie Suburbia. Robert Lund was married to the actress slash musician slash screenwriter Zoe Lund, who wrote 1992's Bad Lieutenant, my second favorite movie after The Wizard of Oz. Bad Lieutenant, which closes on Schooly D rapping over Cashmere, which led to a lawsuit, and badass Abel Ferrara calling out the greatest rock band of all time, Led Fucking Zeppelin, direct quote, Oh yeah, I'll strangle that cocksucker Jimmy Page as if every fucking lick that guy ever played didn't come off a Robert Johnson album. Bad Lieutenant with magnificent, terrifying, full-frontal male nudity Harvey Keitel, weeping and squawking like some horrifying featherless bird. The bottom of the bottom. The end of the end of the end. Zoe Lund as Keitel's alluring, toxic oracle in the movie. Pencil-thin in a black leotard. Her red hair piled on her head like a coil of serpents. Incandescent Zoe Lund, who some anonymous shithead on YouTube... Deigned to describe as modern day hot. You fucking Philistine, don't you qualify her. Don't you even gaze upon her, you Judas, you scum. Zoe Lund, dead at 37 in Paris, even cool and gorgeous in death. Her eerie widower, Robert Lund, I met in 2000, less than a year after his estranged wife's death. Robert Lund, harmless as he was sinister. The Robert Lund I would run into ten years later in Greenpoint, his head shaved, a dent in his skull from, what, a bullet? Some dumb Long Island cop's truncheon? A trepanation experiment gone awry? That dent in his dome overflowed with narrative as I crawled home in Thursday morning clothes on a Sunday afternoon after snorting morphine and opana for days and sleeping in my band's rehearsal space. Robert Lund. As I have said, my memory betrays me. Smash cut to 2001, after my friend Jacob has overdosed on speedballs and died, but before the towers have fallen. I am still working at Dawn Hills. It is less of a sweet spot. One night, I take too many painkillers at work and black out. I have recalled the events of most of my blackouts eventually, but never this one. I woke up on a dusty red Chesterfield in Brooklyn in a home belonging to Robert Lund I had fallen down at work then began crying when Jessica the junkie waitress tried to help me up I tried to kiss her this is a tidy little sketch of the shitty subman I was in my 20s Jessica and Robert Lund put me in a cab and brought me back to his place in Brooklyn because I couldn't tell them where home was I couldn't tell them where I was supposed to go When I woke up, Robert Lund brought me a glass of water, and we sat on his stoop looking out at Manhattan. I was here for the blackout in 77, he said. The whole city went dark, man. The skyscrapers looked like fucking tombstones. It was amazing, like the end of the world. Then he laughed. His laugh sounded like massive charred timber dragging on concrete. I did not become close friends with Robert Lund. He did not get me sober. He did not teach me the power of Tai Chi and poetry and forgiveness. He did not transform my life. But I've never been able to forget the sight of Robert Lund dancing alone in the darkness of Dawn Hills. If you, like me, endure the slow exsanguination of the soul that is social media, you are chided, you are implored, you are commanded several times a day To dance like no one is watching. But when we are hollowly admonished by friends and strangers to dance like no one is watching, what they mean is dance like no one is watching if you are a white female ectomorph between the ages of 17 and 23 at the cultural wasteland of some overpriced festival like Coachella or Burning Man or South by Southwest when you are quite sure not just that everyone is in fact watching but also that you're dancing like but also that you're dancing like no one is watching is being shot on an iPhone 7 Robert Lund actually danced like no one was watching By accident, I was open to it, I bore witness to it, and I carry that burden to this day. I still struggle to comprehend it. There is no emoji for the way I feel about the memory of Robert Lund's half-naked body writhing before me in the dark. I intend this only as a word of caution. Keep your head down. Hold tight to your cell phone. Do not make direct eye contact. Binge on Netflix and Seamless and Face Stalking. Pull the blinds down. Turn the air conditioning up. Do not dance like no one is watching. And do not look at someone who is. You may not be prepared for what you see. A man well past the flowering of youth. A man lounging towards the abyss. A man who has been crushed without being broken. A man who has lost more than he ever dreamed he would have. Not just standing, but still grinding, still spinning, still gyrating, still grinning. The. I think one of the things that I'm proud of in that piece is that the. You know, I'm ostensibly writing about a record, but um, without saying a fucking word about the record, but I did get to write a lot about Robert Lund and a little bit about myself. And the and also at the end there, um, you know, I conflate Robert Lund and Lanigan. Um, Lanigan was the skeleton in the flesh suit. Uh, he was the man... You know who's who's been crushed without being broken. He's the he's the man lounging towards the abyss. The okay, I got to keep going on this narrative. I I still have a lot of ground to cover here. The I put I tried to put as Lanigan did not want to write the book. The, but I tried to put as much um, as much pressure as I could, tactfully, on him to write the book. The um, I knew that I knew that it was important, not just for him and for his legacy, but for also for us. One of the things that I felt when before I knew him. Um, and it, I only felt it stronger as I got got to know Lanigan was that, you know, he was he was the voice of experience. Um, he was like me, but like my older brother, or but he was also it was like he was four hundred years old because he had seen so much. He had been to the depths of heroin addiction of. Um, of meth addiction of crack addiction homelessness um, you know strong arming people at ATMs for money the he had been to the outer limits of um, of human experience and at times he had been a monster he had been he'd been a, a, a very bad man he had seen Horrible shit, and he had done horrible things, but he never, he never lost his humanity. And I think that he carried the burden of um, the bad things he had done uh, out of anger, out of resentment, out of jealousy, out of weakness, out of you know service to his addiction. I, I think he remembered all of that, and I think it it weighed. Um, you know, terribly heavy on him. The, there was so much that, well, let me backtrack here. The, I was going to read it, but I'm sort of running out of time here. The, at one point I, I have been pushing him and pushing him to write the book. And I, I I didn't know if it was going to happen. And I was like, fine. Finally, I was like, you got to do this. You just got to fucking hit it with the big hammer. You got to give him everything you have. And, uh, tell him how and why he needs to write this book. And I sent him this email and I was like, you know, you are... Uh, you're like, Orpheus, you know, the you have walked through hell and emerged. Um, and it's transformed you. And you owe it to yourself to lay that burden down. And you owe it to us, your fans, your readers, the people who love you, the... To tell us what it was like you you know the and I alone have you know survived to tell the tale so I sent him this sort of fervent email late at night one night and then after I hit send I pushed my um, pushed myself back from the computer sitting in this chair and I said well that's it I won't hear from him again and I didn't hear from him for a week and it sucked And then he sent me a big chunk of writing and it was the beginning of the book. And, uh, that ended up actually being the prologue and it was fucking spot on. It was so good. So perfect. The, he had a lot of ideas of what he wanted to put in the book and what he didn't. Um, there was a lot of stuff that he, where he, that he was adamant. Um, it wasn't going to go into the book. Um, and, uh, somehow I, uh, Nagel coaxed him into putting it in there. The <clears throat> I want to be real clear the um, I uh, I had no part in writing the book. I um, I am not a co author or ghostwriter or anything that, uh, like that. like that It was Lanigan's work, um, through and through. Uh, I I was an editor, um, and the I, I feel proud that I did make a contribution to it. But um, it was his work, his words, you know, his and his alone. The, um, at one point, we were hanging out in his, um, his backyard in L.A., and he said, you know, the, this is not going in the book, but I'm going to tell you this story, um, you know, about how I, I finally got off heroin. And he described, um, you know, Courtney Love, putting him in a rehab in California so he could escape the, um, the cops, uh, both the, de- the detective in, intent on taking him down and the gangsters who were out for, for him for ripping off a bunch of heroin. And he woke up there after, you know, four days of nightmarish detox and he had had, you know, dreads down to his waist and they had shaved his hair off. He had like cigarette butts in them and stuff from, from being homeless and uh, and his arms were bandaged from, you know, from his wrist up to his elbow. The, there's a reason why Lanigan always wore long sleeves. Um, I mean, from his, from his knuckles to his shoulders, it looked like he had been chewed by dogs. And uh, so he woke up there on like a chaise lounge in the sunshine and... Um, his, you know, his hair shorn and bandaged up and he sort of sent a probe out to, out to God, you know, saying like, if this is, if I'm going to do this, you know, I need a sign from you. I need to, I need to know, you know, and he said, he felt like a, just this crystal moment of this like lightning bolt, the, that went through his body and he fell to his knees. And he said, you know, at that moment I was changed instantly and forever, Um, and I knew that, um, that, you know, that everything had to change and that, uh, that I would be a different person going forward. And I was like, what Mark, are you, are you shitting me? The number one, that story is going in the fucking book. You got to put that story in the book. That is, that's incredible. It's, it's too, um, it's too phenomenal of a story for you not to put it in the book. And, uh, and number 2 that's how the book ends right there that's incredible that that's i mean you know my whole life i've prayed for that kind of fucking lightning bolt epiphany i've never had one and the and you describe it so perfectly it's so powerful like the it, was that really it you you like you just had that epiphany and then you were sort of like bathed in white light and uh you know i shall go forth and sin no more and he was like Oh no, not, not at all. No. I mean, I, I relapsed many times, went back to that same facility until finally they, you know, they banned me from it forever. And, and, you know, after the heroin, when I, when I did finally get off heroin, there was, you know, crack and then meth. But that was when I made up my mind to change, you know, the, and I laugh and I feel good about this story about, you know, sharing this story um, because it was the same as my experience um, you know, uh, when I was 17, I recognized that I was an alcoholic and that I was going to have to, um, make a change. And, uh, sure enough, a short 15 years later, I stopped drinking. The, um, epiphanies are real, but often we need to have the same, but humans are thick. Often we need to have the same epiphany 10, 15, 20 times over the span of nine years before, um, before we're actually ready to be like, okay, you know, I, I get now that it's real. The Another good story I want to tell um, on Lanigan about hanging out in his backyard is um, his wife, his partner, um, his bandmate, Shelly, um, still a very beautiful woman. And the, um, you know, she and Lanigan just sort of like lived in black denim and, and you know, leather jeans. The, and we were sitting back there one day. Uh, I think she ran out to get Starbucks for us or something. And then, um, while well, we were yammering away. And then she came down and brought us the Starbucks. And the. My eyes lingered on her form a second too long. And uh, I was looking at her ass and then she moved out of the way and Lanigan was just fixing me. And now it was that great white stare. Just the black dead eyes. You know, I, I will bury you and I will not give you a second thought. And I was like, fuck me. You know, the I've worked with a lot of people in my life. Most of them, not good people. Lanigan is the the first person I ever worked with who I was act, I was afraid of um, and you know to the point and, and things often got heated enough between the two of us that I actually watched the YouTube clip of him fighting somebody at Roskilde in uh, I think it was Denmark or Norway um, I watched it so I could learn what he did before he threw hands if he dropped his shoulder if you know what his feet did what his hips did in case he threw a punch at me I would be, so I would be able to get out of the way but the having him catch me staring at his wife's ass in his own backyard i was like you done fucked up boy the they're going to find your body back here in you know 10 15 20 years with a a bic pen stuck through your fucking jugular cuz he's just going to stab you to death with a pen and bury you in the backyard and they'll never find you. And uh, <clears throat> finally, a couple of months later, I I sort of confessed to Lanigan that I had had that thought and worried about it. And, you know, I wanted to apologize to him for you know, fucking leering at his wife like a dirtbag. And... He was both gracious and sinister as as Mark was prone to be. And he said uh, the he said Shelly's a beautiful woman. She's always caught my eye. I you know, I, I would never um, I could never blame anyone for you know finding her attractive as well. The um and, and he said, and I like you. I, you know, I could never kill you. But you would look real good with an eye patch. <laughs> and that, you know, that was... Uh, that was like a blessing from Lanigan, you know. <laughs> You'd look real good with an eye patch. The... Once... I'm tell a couple more stories here and then wrap up. The... <laughs> Once we got the book sold, the you know there was a little bit sort of like back and forth. The I knew writing a book is hard. Writing a book sucks, and the I knew that that he wouldn't get it done. That we wouldn't get it done unless somebody was holding um, somebody was holding our feet to the fire. Because there's a lot of books that, that get not written that way. Um, and I I knew that I knew instinctively that the the best home for it was um, with Ben Schaefer, a great editor who was also a huge fan of Lanigan's. And uh, Lanigan wanted to self-publish and keep all the money, the which is also a great idea. But I was just I feared that we would never we would never do it. Um. So we sold the book to Ben Schaefer at DeCapo, and um, the. And I was like, you know, congrats, Mark, we did it. I can't wait to read the book. You know, the, the it's going to be incredible. And uh, and he was like, what? No, fuck you. The you're, I'm not doing this alone. You're doing this with me. The um and I was like, oh shit, this is the best and worst thing I can imagine. Um, you know, to get the opportunity to work with, um, you know, to honestly to work with one of my heroes to work with one of my idols to work with an artist who has touched me like no other um and also uh was a fucking hard ass and you know to to go into that project knowing that um you know that he was real hard-headed and that uh that he could be menacing um i was excited about it and and also not looking forward to it um, but also when that knock comes, you open the fucking door. The um, one of my greatest regrets. I have a lot of regrets in my life. I mostly regrets. I'm just a pile of regrets in a fucking black hooded sweatshirt. I don't have a lot of regrets about my relationship with Lanigan. The, I loved him, and I told him that I loved him multiple times he told me that he loved me and the but he offered to produce my next I did I he offered to produce my next record and I really didn't have a record and then uh, fall of 2020 some real ill shit went down in my life and I wrote I think I wrote five songs in six weeks and I sent them to him and he said this is it man this is the record um, I'm going to produce it. Here, these are the parameters. You're going to come over and we're going to do it in Ireland. And then I was... The same shit that triggered writing the record triggered PTSD and hardcore depression, and you know, sort of anxiety and ennui and inertia um, and insecurity to the point that I, I never got. You know, he had asked for demos and the... You know he he wanted us to get to work immediately, and I was like, I'm not going over, back over to Ireland in fucking December to do this record, even with Lanigan. We got to wait for the summer, and uh, and I was scared of working with him too. The um, he promised that it would be uh, rigorous, and I believed him, and I blew it. I I missed that opportunity, and I will I will always regret that. Um, but he did. He dug those songs, and I had an idea for a screenplay that I had pitched him, and uh, and he was really into that. And um, he, I asked him if he would do the soundtrack. He said absolutely. Um, our buddy uh, Roberto was gonna direct, and uh, <clears throat> I promise I will finish that record by the end of the year. The record that Lanigan. Was wanted to uh, to produce, and I will finish that screenplay. Um, so, Roberto, brace yourself. Um, I've talked a lot of shit about my friend before his body is even cold. Um, I don't regret it. Uh, Lanigan, he was a tremendous friend. He had a great sense of humor and. I don't think that he would want to be um, lionized as a tender man, though he was. Um, and I don't think he would want to be remembered as a tender man without also being remembered as you know a, someone who had been capable of brutality. Um, he was both sides of the coin. Um, they broke the fucking mold when they make when they made Mark William Lanigan um, I do I have an epitaph that he sent me that his headstone would have to be like nine feet long to fit this epitaph it's like three paragraphs I saved it somewhere I will dig it out he said The he said Shelly won't do it but I'm counting on you this is the epitaph that I want um, I will post that but one of the things I want to say about um um uh, about working with Lanigan, um, and I'll close on this is that uh, I, I can't recall if Mark finished high school. Um, I don't think you know. I know he never went to college. The he was he was a a, a brilliant man. He was at absolutely a genius. Um, incredible intellect. Read voraciously. Um, but uh, he didn't know how to write a book, and the though he delivered me this first passage that was near perfect, um, you know for opening the book and for uh, putting the proposal together. Um, when he gave, you know, gave me the materials for the first couple chapters, it was a fucking mess and it took a lot of uh, chopping and splicing and okay, I'm gonna put this here and you know, m- move this around. Um, in order to string together a linear narrative and, and sort of make it all operate by the rules in which we tell a story um, that provides a reader with a, um, a connected, uh, sort of supported reading ex- experience where you always know where you are in the narrative. And the, and we battled over you know, some of the changes I wanted to make and the, the way that he wanted it. Um, once I dared to insert a sentence and he fucking railed on me Um, I say that not to to demonstrate what a hard ass he was but so y'all know that it wasn't me pulling the strings he had a very clear idea of what he wanted to write and what he didn't want to write and he was he was going to do all the work and he did Um, in like four months which is incredible but the those first two chapters were v- very rough um, and we argued a lot about how a book should work how a story should be told by the last three or four chapters I was correcting grammar and punctuation um, Lanigan had like taught himself to drive on the Autobahn That's how smart he was, Um, and that's how humble that he he was when it came to the writing. He knew that he, as experienced, you know, he was as a lyricist, he knew that he didn't have any experience um, writing a narrative. And, um, you know, a lot of people will say, I am your humble student. Lanigan lived it, and I I would give him feedback on a chapter at, 11 in the morning and at 3 p.m. that day he would deliver to me a new chapter in which he had incorporated my input and my advice my prescriptives um, from four hours earlier and he would never go back and make the same mistake he just that's how fucking smart that guy was he just soaked it up immediately on the fly and uh, was able to make changes and move forward I'm going to wrap this up um, not gonna plug anything today. I think my next podcast guest is going to be my mom and then my friend uh Scott Coomer. <sighs> well, you know, I don't I don't know how to end this. Uh Mark, I loved you dearly. I'm fortunate to love a lot of people in my life. But the love that I had for you, that I have for you, is unlike any love I had for anybody else in my life. You were completely singular. And Till, till the day that I die, I will, I will mourn losing you as a friend, as a mentor, as a brilliant artist. But already, even yesterday, even by yesterday a- afternoon, I was struck by how fucking lucky I was to have you in my life at all. How lucky to have your art in my life your stories, your voice, your incredible lyrics, how lucky I was to have you in my life as a friend. Mark, thank you.